0: welcome to the hidden white podcast this is episode 761 this is my interview with oliver berkman we discuss his book his work a little bit about journaling and many other things i hope you enjoy it. g'day ladies and gentlemen welcome to the show how the heck are you man cool day here hope you're having a good one too I'm bringing you an interview today, whatever you're doing, might be going for a jog, might be driving the car. You'll get a bit of a kick out of this conversation with Oliver Berkman. He is the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. That's actually the book that I came across, uh, which is why I reached out to Oliver to have him on the show. I speak with Oliver. Um, We actually start off this conversation talking about journaling and his writing habits. We talk, because he's a journalist himself, so we talk about um, how he finds his work, the inspiration to do his work. He has a broad fascination across multiple uh, facets, however, he seems to particularly focus or find intriguing the topic of human psychology, so he writes a lot on that. So we talk about his method of gathering his information, coming across his ideas and his method of writing as well. We also talk about uh, his book, The Antidote. Now he might sound like a pessimist, however it's to the contrary. He actually believes that we need to embrace the negative thoughts, the negative thinking, the negative things in our lives to really move positively towards a greater level of happiness. And it is aligned with the stoic thought that, you know, if we look at the negative futures, we'll actually be better able to handle them and avoid perhaps the severe consequences that might come about by trying to minimize them or avoid them or diminish them or hide them. And I think that's really what it's about. Guys, it's a really cool conversation. I hope you enjoy it. We'll chat at the other end. See ya. G'day Oliver. Welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks for asking me to take part Great to have you here on the show You're over there in Brooklyn, New York Yeah, that's right, yeah Enjoying the weather?
1: <laughs> it's okay, I kind of like cold weather uh, Nobody else I know does But uh, I am I'm I don't have a problem
0: <laughs> Why do you think that is? Why do you think you like cold weather?
1: Well the boring answer is probably just being raised in the north of England so you know it's in your it's in your blood you know uh it's uh it's what you know best mm. i find that my brain works better in cold weather and in very hot and humid weather i sort of <clears throat> slow to a crawl so uh i'm i'm always feels a bit sharper in the in this kind of weather
0: well they do say that i'm pretty sure there's some some sort of study behind that that says that uh, the colder it is the better our learning capacity it certainly
1: seems to be true for me yeah
0: yeah Perhaps the longer we live too. Good,
1: excellent. Well then then I'm in a to my uh, climate right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, I um I appreciate the cold weather. And I'm from Cairns, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but Cairns is at the north of Australia, very tropical, very humid, um, and it's either hot or wet. Um, right. and I love the cold.
1: Well, yes, they, you either, everyone either wants to recreate their childhood or or Run away from their childhood, I suppose, in various different ways. <laughs> not only when it comes to weather, but
0: uh, I guess the novelty yeah. for me is, is probably <laughs> gives me a little bit of you know excitement, something that's <laughs> not so familiar.
1: Yes, yes. Also, I'm British, so
0: I've just as a British person,
1: I have to talk about the weather all the time, right? It's kind of a national, it's an alleged national trait. Uh, so there you go. <laughs>
0: well, we do that here too. I mean, that's the that's the common, and I think over there too. <laughs> that's how we build you know a little bit of connection straight away.
1: Yes, it's the one thing, especially these days and around here where you can be, well, where you can in this country, where you can be absolutely certain you aren't going to hit a uh, partisan sore point and end up having an argument with somebody. (laughs)
0: Exactly. So tell us a little bit about your work, Oliver. The the reason why I got you on the show is your book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. So, It just intrigues me and I certainly want to talk about that, but um, what, what do you do? Well, it's a good question, actually.
1: Um, I, I write a weekly column for the Guardian newspaper and the Guardian website, uh, which uh, has the uh, title. It was intended as a joke. Although I have to keep explaining that. Apparently, uh, this Some column talks. will change your life. Yeah, uh, I was It started off quite a few years ago now um, as a kind of um, just a kind of tour of, of self-help. Methods and books and approaches and sort of trying to sort the wheat from the chaff. Honestly as it has evolved it's kind of um, anything to do with psychology and uh, Related topics productivity all the way through to spirituality, whatever sort of interests me. It's an amazing uh, I'm amazingly fortunate really to have a little space to just explore What's on my mind in that Mm. kind of uh, in that kind of context uh, and then, yeah, I, I write uh, around the place, other stuff, and uh, wrote a book, and I'm uh, attempting to write another one at the moment. So that's what I do. Apart from, you know, mainly what I do is uh, clean up after a two-year-old, but when I'm working. That's, that's fun. I mean. <laughs> it's actually great fun.
0: <laughs> it is. I um, you know, you, you said you're writing another book now, uh, more about productivity, so love that topic as well. Um, certainly I feel it's something that sort of comes naturally to me, but there's so much more I can still learn in that space as well. So I want to talk about that, but so wh- why psychology? Like what's, what's your fascination there with human psychology? Is it like, are you just curious of why people do things they do and how they think?
1: It's interesting. You know, there's a kind of a cynical explanation, which is that I got into journalism. I wanted to be a journalist ever since I was kind of ridiculously small. Um, really? Like how small? And I was, like, making little newspapers, newsletters, and, and forcing my classmates to read them at kind of
0: nine, I think. That's weird. Eight. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, it's yeah, not it weird, weird, but yeah. it's, it um, kind it's interesting of is how it's, 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 it's come from <laughs> that age, you know? Wow. Wow.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, if someone had taken me aside there and said, "You know, by the time you're in your twenties, uh, journalism is going to be beginning its uh, death spiral," that might have been uh, useful information. Did you anyway, just watch your I'm
0: father watching. write, like, read newspapers every day, or something like that? And was that the?
1: Yeah, and in fact, the Guardian came to our breakfast table. Yeah, every morning, and uh, oh. and uh, I, when I got to work there for the first time, it was kind of uh, where where do you go after that kind of uh, situation? But that was all. that's cool (laughs) cool. but um yeah so i mean i was so i was really interested i was gonna say i was really interested in journalism and then one of the pressures that you feel uh if early in a journalistic career is um to specialize uh to to choose something that's going to make you sort of distinct in the in the industry and i've always thought it wasn't particularly conscious but in hindsight i've always thought that psychology is such a great like (laughs) pseudo-specialism, <laughs> because I didn't want to specialize, and I feel like I'm a generalist fairly deep in my yeah. soul. Uh, but psychology is kind of great, because very few things are not psychology, um, when you think about it, you know? I mean, anything that uh, humans are involved in, I think you can get away with uh, claiming is psychology.
0: You can make the, the other thing,
1: mm. Right, no, exactly, yeah, and the other thing I just want to say about the column and why I do it, I want to be honest about it, I didn't necessarily realize it when I started, but I think it has been a kind of, uh, you know, it's been a kind of therapy in a way. Um, you have this you excuse that you're looking into all these different things for work, in quotes, you know, but really you're on the search for meaning and to be more happy and less anxious and all the rest of it. So it's been kind of, uh, you know, there's a personal reason too. I don't think anybody, I don't know what you think about this. I don't think anyone writes or. Podcasts or does anything about a topic unless they um on some level struggle with it. I think if you don't struggle with something, it's kind of boring to you. So you never end up uh, being sufficiently
0: interested in it. You've just shown a lot of my my biggest secrets. <laughs> um, that's exactly why this exists: my blog, my podcast, the people I interview. It's because I want to talk to them about things that I'm you know uh, interested about, but at some level I'm you know perhaps struggling with it as well. And happiness is one of those things that. Um, I really want in life. And it's perhaps because it's something that I do struggle with um, in understanding what is happiness and and how does it all work. So it's interesting to say that.
1: I think that's universally true. I think the only difference in terms of people who write and talk in the self-help space, there are people who admit to that and people who don't admit to it. But I don't think there's many people of whom it isn't true.
0: Well, then it makes me wonder, like everything that we do in our occupations, most people walk into occupations that they do because they're walking into it for some sort of monetary gain, etc. cetera. Um, and perhaps it's not because they're, they're pursuing it for a, a deeper reason, and perhaps that's why they don't enjoy it. So, you know, if 85% of the workforce aren't satisfied, perhaps it's because they're not really targeting the things that they should be targeting. Um, and, you know, the continuance of this podcast, it's not the biggest podcast in the world. It's not making me money. It's um, because it's at it's, it's, it's some level um, selfish. It's some level deep therapy just like you said
1: yeah though I also do think that that is that what you call selfish that is the way to connect in a way that helps other people right because yeah. I think that um the more personal you are being not necessarily in, on an explicit level I don't necessarily mean one should always write and talk about oneself but the more personally something really matters to you I think that's what makes it resonate
0: with, mm.
1: with other people, there's a universality in that real, particular specificity. Uh, so I think that uh, you know it's it's uh, selfish only in one, in one sense, and very much not selfish in another. Or at least that's my hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think, I think you know, working on ourselves in that manner is is going to be good naturally for everyone around us.
1: Yeah, yeah, know I agree.
0: How do you, how do you bring your personality or experiences to your writing you know how do you interwine it are you quite vulnerable
1: I mean it's difficult to say because it doesn't work consciously you know I, I I pick ideas for my column and my and my book and the chapters in my books so, you know based on what just I feel a kind of deep and abiding interest in I think, as I've already suggested, that that al- almost automatically means that it's going to um, be a matter of bringing my, my personality into things, uh, whether I like it or not. I think as I've got a bit older, I've started to be a bit more sort of straightforward about writing about my own uh, likes and dislikes and struggles and successes. Hmm. Uh, I think when I started off, I thought that was really kind of embarrassing or something to yeah. talk in that way. Hmm. I think I've changed. I do think the climate has changed. I think in terms of what kind of media people are like, like consuming, you know, it, it's no longer the case, even within my not exactly incredibly long career to date that, uh, you know, we've gone from a situation where, you know, if I was reporting about some study, my, my column might be the only place people, saw that so I just want to focus on the facts now there's this incredible information surplus hmm. and I think what, what has value for people is interpretations and personal uh, personal takes and, and an understanding of how this connects to individual people that, that seems a lot more valuable now in, in a world of you know where getting hold of the facts is uh, is so easy in fact it's so easy that it's actually a need to have systems in your life for keeping out some of the information that as you don't get drowned.
0: So we're looking for more a combination of not only the facts, but how the story relates to the individual's life.
1: I think so. I mean, I think there's a kind of, I don't know if they're connected to the sense that, that as we have a sort of surplus of information, we have a shortage of, of meaning, but they certainly seem to be going along with each other, I, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought through what the relationship between them is, mm. but I think, you know, if you look where the, the useful thing to do, I think, in the kind of stuff that we do, where, where that is, I think it is not necessarily in bringing people some facts they weren't aware of, but it's contextualization and interpretation and, and yeah, stories, yeah.
0: So how do you go about writing a well-received article that also gets the you know attention and feedback that perhaps you desire i mean my
1: my process certainly for my short columns at this point is fairly sort of ritualized or routinized in a way i i you know i i look around at what i've been reading and in, in my big note system that i keep in evernote and i get ideas sort of emerge and then i then i off and gather a bunch of other people's perspectives either through things that have been read, written or, or through talking to people. Um, but then there always comes a moment when all you can do is just like print out what you've got and stick it in your back pocket and go for a walk and, and, and hope that uh, some sort of structure or way in or sort of organizing theme comes from a place that I have absolutely no control over you know i think that's probably true for all writers on on some level uh so i feel like i don't get very good answers to this question about no it's interesting you say that because i was listening
0: i was listening to someone yesterday talking about um the ideas and they mentioned some name elizabeth i think someone and and said ideas are just out there and creative types like yourself perhaps journalists um you know need to become good at becoming a receiver for these ideas um, yes. and And that's really Elizabeth allowing Gilbert. those ideas that's, to then yeah. flow into from their subconscious mind to their conscious mind so they can put it down and express it in a way that is valuable to other people
1: absolutely I think that 's Elizabeth Gilbert in her book Big that's, Magic which is uh, yes. which is great and she she sort of talks as if ideas have a life of their own, so firstly, you have to be a receiver of them and secondly if you don't she has this whole theory that if you don't act on them uh, when they come to you they 'll like leave and go and land on someone else someone instead, else. Will get it. Which, kind of makes sense, yeah
0: so how do you, like what are your routines to help, I mean you said did you sort of get an idea and you go out there and do a bit of your own research and gather some information, what other things are you doing to really help um, receive those ideas better
1: one of the things that I think has made a big difference to me is uh, morning pages, I don't know if you are well familiar
0: with this idea,
1: I mean it's just journaling, really, but uh-huh. uh, there's a a, a a woman who's kind of a writer on creativity, I guess, called Julia Cameron, who first sort of developed this particular approach. This is a, a daily ritual. I don't manage it every single day now that the toddler is here, but it's where you sort of write and just write in a sort of completely open-ended way in handwriting three sides of a, of a regular size notebook and you just write whatever comes and the only rule is you have to get to the end of the three pages You, you um you have to keep going and i think that this is something that seems i can't prove it i suppose but it seems to make me much more receptive to seeing you know ideas that are out there in the in the ether um, it's something to do with the fact that you just do it and you get to the end of the three pages and that is the goal the goal is just quantity
0: three pages um, yeah wow
1: right so often you know after about a page I feel like okay I've, this has served its purpose I don't need to do it anymore but but when I'm being disciplined about it I keep going anyway and it's often you know second half of the third page that, that something sort of comes together in a way that um, I I wouldn't have uh, predicted because yeah. I think that Hmm. I think that a lot of ideas you know it's not about most of the time they're hiding in plain sight you know they are they involve facts and arguments and people and stories that I already knew but I just had not seen that they were good ideas for writing um, as opposed to you know I've got to search 50,000 web pages to find uh, a story or a study or a an argument that I had never thought of before. It's much more often to do with like, oh yeah, this story in the news suddenly makes this thing that I've always thought relevant and I wonder if it connects to this and you know, and suddenly it all sort of starts to get together. Together. a mysterious process. Yeah.
0: So when you're writing like when for this journaling process, uh morning pages like do you just write what's on on top of your mind or you actually like you've got an idea and you just start writing about that like what's can you explain the process there because it's probably difficult for a lot of people to understand for me personally um, I don't journal anymore but when I did and I only just stopped recently but I used to just write down thoughts you know things that I'm doing in life things that I'm focusing on rather than just you know writing down whatever something about you know why the toaster cooks like it does
1: <laughs> I think you know. I mean, I think the principle. I'm sort of guessing at what Julia Cameron would say here, but I think a crucial part of this, certainly for me, is that I can't really say any more about what I do because the whole point is there are no rules. Hmm. I will actually, I will actually say a bit more. <laughs> but um, you know, it 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 can be worries in your personal life. It can be issues you're trying to work out in the chapter of your current chapter of your novel. It can be angry rants against the politics of the day. I mean, what it, what it usually is for me is somewhere between, you know, uh, writing about my things that are on my mind in terms of problems or worries or something. And then also, uh, sort of knotty bits of the book that I'm writing where, you know, I'm, I'm coming up against some sort of challenge in, in how to structure it or where to go next or how to illustrate a certain point and, and often, often these two things interconnect. And, you know, it turns out that actually on some level I'm writing a book about my deepest worries. I mean, I don't think that's a surprise given what I've already said. I think that's how it works. But, yeah. um, so, you know, it is very open-ended and she would say, if you can't think of anything to write, you should just write, I can't think of anything to write over and over again until, until something comes. Uh, comes. Because I think if you are going to be a receiver in that way, um, you really can't be setting out with too much of an agenda. Um, and so, yeah, I think the main thing to say, if you're interested in trying this approach is like, be completely prepared for it to feel very strange and stupid and a waste of time. Mm. For you know the first page and maybe the first week uh that's sort of uh part of the course i think that's going to happen um but but that's kind of the point of the exercise is to is to go past them through that
0: that's how you receive the ideas i suppose so it's uh yeah it's interesting i mean i sometimes sit there and I, i just i want to write but i just have no idea where to start and so i just start somewhere and it looks it sounds ridiculous And the problem that I have with my writing is that I don't spend enough time going back over it and restructuring it and putting it into a format that's actually more palatable. I just write and then I continue to write and then I go, yep, that's great, (laughs) and then I publish it, you know. Um, And that's that's my own flaw, so I'm aware of that. But um, what I want to get to is, and probably a good segue into your book, The Antidote, is that I recently stopped my journaling practice because I felt that I was continually writing about stuff that was actually – less purposeful to my happiness. Like I used to do it and I thought it was great and I thought it was going to take me somewhere, affirmations, things that I'm grateful for, writing about those things, writing about the things that I'm struggling with. And I really felt and I still feel this way now that it was actually um, counterproductive to helping me achieve the things that I wanted to change. It was counterproductive to my happiness because I feel it was really focusing on a lot of negatives Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't, you know, what the mind then started to see was all these negatives and then that attracted more of that into my life and that's how I feel right now, um, speaking it with you. but And that links to something behind the book The Antidote, like the main theme there is is just about that, isn't it? Like why we should embrace the negativity and the negative things and thoughts in our lives rather than just try and avoid them all the time?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, my my basic argument there, and this, this sort of emerges from, after I'd been writing this column for a while, I began to see this pattern emerging between the approaches that that did seem to work to help build a more happy and meaningful life and the ones that didn't. And it did seem to be that uh, what I call in the book uh, positive thinking was what didn't work. And what I call in the book that the negative path to happiness was was what did work. Hmm. It needs a bit of clarification because yeah. sometimes people think I'm just, you know, Massively against optimism and in favor of being <laughs> it depressed. Like that, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I think that what I would say is that in my definition, positive thinking is sort of any any approach where you're trying to sort of use your conscious will to focus in a rather relentless way on positive emotions, positive thoughts, positive goals, and to try to screen out and not think about uh, negative stuff, negative emotions, failure, insecurity, Hmm. uncertainty. Uh, And that, I think, backfires very reliably for a lot of people and makes their lives much more stressed. And when I talk about the negative path to happiness, I'm not really saying, you know, try and make as many choices as you can in your life that will make you miserable, but rather... um, all these negative things are an absolutely integral part of living a human life. And the more that we can sort of expand ourselves to accommodate them and encompass them and be friendly towards these things that are going to arise, uh, rather than seeing them as a failure every time they pop up and trying desperately to stamp them out and thereby making them worse, you know, to be the kind of expansive person who can who can live with uncertainty rather than the person who's constantly trying to eliminate uncertainty, I think is the path to a, a much richer kind of uh, happiness and well-being. And then I sort of, in the book, I look at specifics when it comes to affirmations, mm. goals, and failure. We can talk
0: about those if you want. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Um, and I suppose it seems like that, that positive thinking at the conscious level is more manufactured and perhaps false, as far as you know, and that's perhaps why it's less effective in, in guiding us um, through life. Because if it's not coming from a, a, a real deep place, then how sustainable is it going to be? How long can you hold it before other negative stuff that actually just is going to happen anyway? Suffering is real, it's you know, you're not always going to have a, have a nice little walk through life, life is challenging when those things come up, they're going to overrule any positive manufactured thoughts that you've already got.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you can get it as a different uh, angles, but uh, one of them absolutely, as you say, is just like, you know, there is reality and then there is the version of reality that positive thinking promotes and, and there's no point in setting up a, a sort of inevitable clash and tension. I, I also think that another the main problem with the sort of use of the conscious will to determine your emotions is that like the human brain, just doesn't work like that. Um, the example that I start with in the book is this idea of, uh, this sort of game or whatever, where you challenge someone else to not think about a polar bear for mm. two minutes and everyone understands that the moment you try not to think about a polar bear, your mind is going to be full of polar bear thoughts yeah. Or you're going to be suddenly very stressfully trying to cram all sorts of other stuff into your mind to force out the polar bear thoughts. So, you know, we're just not sort of designed in that way to, to use our conscious thoughts to direct our thoughts, our emotions, our, our mental life. Sort of almost since the book, I would I would probably emphasize a little bit more also that, you know, the conscious mind is just one part of the personality. And the idea that you know in your Conscious mind, what's best for you and the people in your life, and what what is the path to the most meaningful existence? Uh, it's just kind of the ego being a bit arrogant, like it, like it always is. Mm. Uh, and so it's a bit like you know the CEO of a company uh, working out the five-year plan for the for the firm without consulting anybody else who actually uh, you know. Does the work elsewhere in the organisation?
0: Hmm. Do you think as a um, I'm just thinking of the negative thoughts that we may have, and and we try and squash them with you know some sort of manufactured positivity and positive talk and all that sort of stuff. But if those negative thoughts coming from a place of our subconscious that we're not aware of, and they're still breathing and existing down there, mm. then all that conscious level self talk is probably going to do very little to turn us in a new direction if the uh, if subconscious mind is, is still walking in that negative direction and focusing on that without us knowing. Yeah, ab-
1: absolutely, yes. And I also, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a really important part of that is that negative emotional symptoms like uh, feeling sad, feeling lonely, feeling stressed, feeling anxious, like you can look at them in two different ways. You can either look at them as in the way that I would say the culture of positive thinking does, which is like, oh, got to get rid of this symptom so that I'm happy. And then there's the way that I would uh, want to recommend, which is you don't need to be happy that you're feeling. Actually, it's not that you've got to sort of be thrilled about these things, Hmm. but they are, they have a message to send. Like they're arising for a reason. Yeah. yeah, Uh, It could be that you are, you know, you are in a situation that you should change in your, in your life. It could be that you're sort of, Taking an approach to your work or to your relationships that could do with being being revised. So you sort of have to welcome those emotions in some sense in order to hear what they they have to say. It's uh, you know if you went to the doctor with a throbbing pain in your abdomen or something, they they wouldn't just say, oh, we well, just got to get the pain to go away. So here's a bunch of painkillers. They would they would want to know what what it told you that you had that
0: pain. Yeah, yeah. They want to look in uh, a little bit deeper. You don't go to the doctors and say, "Yeah, no, everything's good, everything's all right," because <laughs> it's not really going to help them solve anything. Right. So I suppose, yeah, the um having that level of awareness around all the positive, negative stuff that's going on in life is is good for us because then we can, you know, accept it. I suppose we can we can avoid attachment to it, um, but we can also learn maybe how to m- manage it and, and cope with it and even heal it um absolutely yeah but where i'm finding it is that you know and for my example was you know writing some of the things down that i'm you know negative things that were happening in my life that i'm struggling with it seems i feel like perhaps that was just reinforcing the subconscious mind and therefore still making me focus on that unconsciously
1: yeah yeah i mean i don't want to i'm certainly not going to start start yelling at you to start uh Journaling again. Um, I think it's it's uh, definitely one should sort of always follow one's intuitions, especially you know obviously people are always going to drop fifty studies on you and say that journaling helps, and those studies are often great, but they talk about population averages, and uh, you know there's no reason to assume that you are the average person hmm. uh, because none of us none of us is. Uh, so if you feel that it's not working for you, I would totally like endorse that, that decision. But I mean, I think that there is a difference between... Uh, I, I, I mean, I think it is possible to sort of definitely to sort of ruminate, both in written form and uh, in your mind, to sort of take negative things and just sort of set them up on circular internal narrations when actually sort of basically distraction might be more helpful, you know, doing something else that took your, took your mind off it. I think if you're not denying the presence of those negative things in the first place, then, then you're probably good. I mean, I think the problem is the problem is the idea that you're going to force them to go away just by willpower. I think that's the, that's Mm. the problem. And that's one of the problems I do have with a lot of, a lot of, conventional affirmations, you know, and there is quite a lot of research now to suggest that they can really, they can really be unhelpful for some people because, um, you know, if you're already feeling down and you tell yourself, Oh, I'm a lovable person. This was the example in the study that I'm thinking of. Uh, there's pretty good evidence that people who already have low self-esteem end up worse as a result of that because they, um, they Mm -hmm. just generate counter arguments. So there's some sort of fault
0: expectation.
1: Well, right. Or they hear themselves saying, I'm a lovable person, and then they're like, no, no, I'm not. Here's all the reasons why I'm not. So, right. you know, it just turns into more sort of uh, further inner dialogue. I get battle. that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you're trying yeah. To again, you know, trick yourself with some sort of positive thinking to something that's right. not actually the reality. And it's not actually doing anything to, you know, solve the fundamental issue of, of why you feel like you're not a lovable person. Yeah, yeah. So what sort of no, strategies exactly. do you do you sort of suggest to, to work on these this, this way of thinking?
1: Well, one of them that I was very excited about when I discovered this and now use all the time myself, yeah. is, and it's in the book, is this idea that has its roots in the Stoics uh, of ancient Greece and Rome. I have to say, I don't take credit for this, but when I wrote this book, People were not much talking about Stoicism and now I feel like I can't escape it. It's like everywhere people are saying uh, the, the rediscovering uh, the philosophy of Stoicism is the, yeah. uh, is the way forward. Um, and this is this idea of um, negative visualization. This idea of really when you're worried or anxious about something or unsure, really thinking through in great detail uh, what the worst case scenario could be. Not mm. trying to convince yourself that everything's going to work out fine. But asking yourself like, okay, if things didn't work out fine. How would that, how would that be? And, um, you know, there are two reasons why this, I find this is so therapeutic. One is that very often you were catastrophizing and that actually when you really think about it, it's things would, could not be that terrible. And in other cases, even if they could, uh, be very terrible, there's something about just the mental rehearsal that that sort of saps them of their radio, I'm mixing metaphors, that removes their sort of radioactive charge, you know, and they're sort of much more, uh, much less. Yeah. So for example, I think that a lot of people are very anxious about money. Yeah. Understandably so. Mm. And you can often sort of find yourself thinking that in a, that The images that sort of flash into your mind if everything went wrong for you financially uh, are, for a lot of people, and I want to be clear, obviously, this is partly a, a certain amount of privilege talking, but for a lot of people, they're worse than they actually would be, right? I mean, and it's really useful to think through, like, well, okay, what would I do if I lost my job? What would I do if I lost job? And, you know, maybe you would end up living in some on some friend's sofa or you know moving in with uh, relatives or something like that it could be pretty humiliating yeah but it's not quite the same as like death you know it's not quite the same as uh living under a bridge whatever it might be it's going to be different for everybody and some people are not going to have you know friends with sofas they could go live on live on but the point is whatever you are catastrophizing in your mind it's probably
0: not as bad as Not you. so
1: bad. It's <laughs> yeah. probably something you could handle. There would probably be like 10 stages of it and you could take certain actions at different points and deal with certain things and, uh, you know, and obviously I very much hope that none of these things ever happen for the person who's doing this uh, visualization, but that's not the point. The point is it gives you a new kind of calm energy with which you can then head off into your more ambitious life and hopefully be a huge success.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes when you do that sort of practice, you get to a point where it's almost laughable. Right. Not right.
1: Right. Well, I mean, yes, and that, what that makes me think is that the other way of looking at this is like, you know, um, this is relevant in the stuff I'm trying to do on time and productivity at the moment, but, um, you know, w- w- like life is a, uh, terminal illness or whatever, with no cure or whatever they say, you know, it's like it's, it, it, you're not going to achieve immortality, no matter what you uh, do. So in a way, these kind of existential questions, the more existential you get, the more absurd they begin to seem because we're all, we're all headed to the same place eventually, as it were, to mm-hmm. get a bit um, melodramatic about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What is, your, what is your thoughts on self-help and um, personal development, that sort of realm? Well, I think, you know, a while ago, uh, I would
1: have just been very critical because I think that um, it was very closely identified with positive thinking. It was very much a question of this very hyper individualistic, very sort of stamp out the negativity, uh, make it all about yourself and and make it all about trying to make yourself as happy as possible. And, you know, my book is in part a. A big sort of counterblast against that approach, but I think things have really changed. Actually, I think mm. there's a lot of uh, broader uh, variety of perspectives now. I think that maybe it's something to do with the sort of times in which we live, whether economically, politically, environmentally. You know, it's people are much more seem to be a lot more open about uh, the sort of uh, downsides that they're struggling with, or whatever it is. And 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 I think that you know. I, I don't think that I no longer judge. You know, I, at some point I would have probably been judgmental of the idea that something was a self-help book or someone was a self-help guru. But anyway, also I'd be a hypocrite now because my book gets shelved in the self-help section, so I got <laughs> <laughs> I to I embrace it. But um, you know, I think it, I think it's great to be able to talk about how you know we're all battling various different versions of the same stuff, and we all have. Various different versions of the same goals, and uh, mm. and I think there's also a more sort of collaborative element entering in. I feel like I keep coming across books and people talking about how you know this stuff is a team a team sport, uh, and uh, you don't need to you don't need to be hyper individualistic about it. And in fact, if you are hyper individualistic about it, you'll probably end up not very happy. So um,
0: mm.
1: I think it's kind of good good. The positive developments, probably they are correlated with like negative developments on the planet as a whole. But uh, there you go.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, improvement is about looking at both um, the negatives and positives, and and using whatever you can, the information that you have to to make the necessary improvements. Like that's that's really what self improvement is about. And it's easy to get trapped into that self improvement that is all positive. Universe is going to bring me greatness, etc.
1: Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's, I think what's really crucial here is like growth, personal growth. And I think that, um, sometimes that involves a change to what it is you thought you wanted. Right. So the kind of personal development book that says like, okay, first of all, clarify your goals. We all know everyone wants, you know, uh, lots of money, great relationship, lots of exotic travel. Okay. And now the rest of this book is about how to achieve that. I'm I'm kind of I feel a bit sort of done with that kind of approach. I think the kind of approach that says like on this journey, the destination is probably going to change as well. Um, is much more exciting. It's much more sort of, I don't mean there's anything wrong with any of the things I just mentioned. Uh, but like, I think you want to head into a journey of personal development with much more openness mm. about like not knowing not assuming that, you know, you at time one knows what you at time two is even going to want from life. Um, it's good to have a certain sense of direction and you shouldn't just like wander aimlessly around, but, but it should be sort of an intuitive navigational compass, I think, rather than, uh, trying to, you know, set out all your very clear goals when you're 20 and, you know, (laughs) just kind of Labor yeah, through, been there. To try to bring them into into <laughs> fruition.
0: Yeah, spot on. I think I think it's more about the journey and, and allowing the journey to be the part that sets the goals for you as you go, rather than trying to have the goals all figured out and then letting the journey, you know, fulfill those goals. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And certainly that's the experience that I have and that's the book I've sort of been writing as well is, is about that journey, trying to have some sort of understanding of, of the destination you want to get to and the life you want to live, but then, um, you know, really just setting up your life in a way that allows you to develop that as you go.
1: Right, right, yeah. And it's, it's I like this idea of like having a compass, having certain kind of values that you know you want to go towards. Uh, yeah. Perhaps others you want to go away from. But not, you know, not kind of this is exactly what my ideal life is going to look like 10 years from now because how could you possibly know you'll be a
0: different person? Yeah, exactly. What is um, what is your sort of definition of happiness then?
1: <laughs> oh, this question. I have been asked this before, once or twice, and, I've, and I don't, and I always like, uh, um, I'm slightly struck dumb. I mean, I did try... Uh, Before I started writing The Antidote, I thought, okay, I better have a working definition of happiness. I'm going to write a book about happiness. And I spent a few weeks (laughs) reading and taking notes and talking to people. Then then I realized, hold on, philosophers have spent 2,000 years failing to answer this question. So I think in a few weeks uh, at the New York Public Library, I'm probably not going to um, uh, beat them at that game
0: that's a In many way ways, to look at it, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In many
1: ways, I think the word happiness is like a placeholder. I think that I think that's fine. I think that um, you sort of you you know it when you um, see it. Uh, I think I can say a few things about what I think happiness is for me and isn't for me. So you know, I I don't think that it is a kind of constant sense of excitement i think my sense of happiness is more angled towards tranquility and peace of mind but i think that's a personality thing uh i think that um there's a certain kind of words that seem to connect to what i want from an experience or a relationship or a piece of writing to do with like richness or juiciness or something like that you know it's not it's 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 just a kind of word and I know it when I when I see it I tend to find some of the versions of happiness that I come across in some books and elsewhere in the self-help world sort of thin I was going to say shallow but that sounds a bit morally judgmental I just mean like just thin I just think that something sort of Rich, juicy, meaty, I don't know what the word is, but I can sort of know when I'm in an experience like that. I can't particularly, uh, make it more specific, you know, mm. say, oh, well, happiness is these five external conditions. Uh, but I think that's sort of how it's got to be. And I think it, it really is going to be different for everyone. The crucial thing is being honest with yourself and making sure that you're not using someone else's definition. Uh, And I think that the definition that each of us has is going to be very hard to put into words. It's going to be much more a question of an intuitive sense that, like, oh, yeah, this is where I want to be. Or that experience was that felt really, really right. Um, And we all know that, you know, there are lots of experiences that involve amazing achievements or large amounts of money or extreme luxury that don't necessarily have that effect. And you're just like, oh. Oh, is this it? Well, mm. I thought this was going to be more, more fun than that. When you do get the chance to do some of those uh, things, sometimes.
0: Yeah, that well, was a very roundabout answer. I'm sorry. I call that superficial happiness. Right, superficial, exactly. Superficial. Exactly. It's made believe. We we feel it in the moment, but it's long, it's short-lasting, and uh, just not sustainable. Leaves us in a sense of suffering almost. Yeah, yeah. Because when we're without, we go, "Oh, we're without. We're uncomfortable. It's terrible." Um, cool. I like that. Uh, what about productivity can you tell us that um, has a link to this undertone of perhaps negative thinking? And, and <laughs> like, is there a link there?
1: Yeah, I think there is. I think yeah. I do have a sort of, I do, I think I have a certain outlook on life that <laughs> you might be able to tell, um, uh, which I don't think is pessimistic, but I think pessimistic is the, is the, the there's a word that get, gets applied to it. I think in the context of productivity, it would be to really pay attention to how finite we are uh, as, as humans. The fact that, you know, you only get so much life, you only get so many hours in a day, you only have so much attention, so much energy. And I think that a lot of productivity advice, this is the idea I'm exploring in this, in this book I'm trying to write, a lot mm-hmm. of productivity advice mainly functions to try to Help us deny that. So, you know, systems and schemes to help you get everything done are actually pretty dangerous because you definitely won't get everything done. You can definitely think of 5,000 more exciting experiences, businesses, books to write, places to go than you will ever have the time to do. And you can definitely receive, you know, thousands more demands from your boss or feel thousands more social obligations than you'll ever have time to fulfill. And I think there's something really liberating and empowering in sort of seeing that you are going to get to do a fraction of those things. Some people take that as depressing. What I'm trying to show in this book is that it's not depressing at all. It's like once you once you stop spending your life trying to achieve something that is impossible to achieve there is to start just, to really achieve there, things. Absolutely. Yeah, no, completely. And and then you can be like, okay, I can just be so much less anxious about staying on top of everything because I know that nobody can stay on top of everything, especially in the world that we live in now with, you know, infinite amounts of email landing in your inbox and infinite amounts of articles that you could read and infinite uh, posts in your Twitter feed. And, and yet we're constantly trying to sort of get better and more efficient at, at, at staying on top of it, at climbing up this this infinite pile. But it's an infinite <laughs> pile, so you're, ne- you're never going to get to the top. Um, and as soon as you stop trying to do that, you can be like, okay, I am definitely not going to achieve all the goals that I had for my life. I'm definitely not going to avoid making anybody angry or disappointed with me. Somebody's going to be angry and disappointed. I'm definitely not going to be able to be, you know, both perfect, you know, perfect parent, person who keeps a spotless house, perfect son or daughter, perfect exerciser, um, you know, that's off the table and once it's off the table that you could be perfect in all these ways, you can be like, okay, well then there's no stress in saying, let me just choose the, the two or three that that really matter to me and um, yeah, some, some emails aren't going to get answered and some people are going to be disappointed in the direction I've taken and uh, the house is probably going to be messy but but that's going to be a positive choice because I have looked my limitations in the face you know and uh, mm. and, and decided which small number of things really matter the most so I, I mean you know I still find people who just think I'm saying, give up hope. Life is terrible, but I don't think it's that at all. I think it's like real life is amazing. Your fantasy life about how you were going to get everything done and stay on top of absolutely everything. That's what's causing all the stress and the lack of meaning
0: and the lack of happiness. And I think there's the, the link yeah, there between absolutely. the productivity and the, and the, the sense of happiness. Um, I, I feel it's like a minimalistic sort of approach to life.
1: Yes. Yes. Now I think that's true. I sorry, I'm talking a lot. If you want to, do you no, want to expand right. on it? You, you go. That? I was going to say like, I do have some issues with minimalism in the culture at the moment. Cause I think when people talk about minimalism, they often imply that you could just get rid of all the unnecessary stuff in your life. And then you'd have time for all the things that matter. And I want to say, no, no, you're going to have to get rid of all the unnecessary stuff and also not do some of the things that matter because there are so many things that really matter. Um, but you're going to have to choose between them. So I think there is a little trap sometimes in the minimalist approach, which some people, not all, not everyone who,
0: then there's also some unnecessary stuff that we're just not going to be able to get rid of anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, you
1: can go through every item in your house asking, does this spark joy, which is Marie Kondo's advice. And I think it's good advice in many ways, but, um, but I've got quite a few things in my house that don't spark joy that you kind of need to have.
0: I'm looking at a few pencils Um, in my pencil holder. I don't (laughs) know if that's ever spark joy. Maybe it does. Maybe that's why they're there. Right.
1: And, you know, I've got like a sort of, you know, I've got cleaning equipment and, uh, you know, it's not, it's it's just like you've got to have it. Um, So I guess the point there applied to productivity is like, yeah, don't imagine that you're going to get rid of all the annoying, tedious admin because, again, if you're seeking a life that is just pure, most important projects all day long, you're actually going to have a less meaningful life because you're going to be, and a less happy life because you're going to be constantly failing by the standards of the impossible standard that you set, Mm. instead of if you can be a bit more accepting that that is part of the inevitable support for a meaningful life, you know, Mm. is that, yeah, you're going to have to file your taxes.
0: I can certainly relate to a lot of what you're saying there uh, in experience and um, you know certainly those things like when you just want to do this, you want to do that and I'm one of those ambitious people that have all these great ideas and want to achieve this X, Y, Z and then I have to do all these things that I just really, they suck, I don't want to do them um, and they really piss me off, they really make me upset and unhappy um, yeah. and it's only been through reducing some of this reality okay. in my life, re- well accepting reality perhaps and going okay, well I can't do it all. Um, let's just focus on a couple of things that I really want to achieve. And now I'm actually, you know, yes, there's things in my day that I just don't really want to do, but I just do them and I glide through them and come out the other side. And I, I I wouldn't say I'm happy, but I'm not unhappy, you know, I'm not suffering. I'm not letting it affect me. Um, and at the same time I feel more focused and better able to do those things that I really want to do as well.
1: Right. Right. I mean, definitely get rid of unnecessary Admin work, yeah. But some of it's not, but some of it's not unnecessary.
0: Yeah, and that takes you know just awareness and, and practice and figuring out what is yeah. right yeah. and what is wrong. I think the Pareto principle sort of helps me there. Going, okay, well, does this actually um, help me achieve anything in my in my work or my the project that I'm working on, the book, you know, whatever it might be that I'm focusing on? Does this yeah. actually help? And if it doesn't, and yeah, maybe it doesn't need to be here.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: But the uh, cu- culture today, I mean, you, you hear a lot of people talk about hustle. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what hustle means. But, um, you know, we're surrounded. We're some social media junkies, most of us. We're on here looking at others, comparing our lives to people that have totally different lives to us. But yet we're really using that as a basis for where we're at. And then we try and take on more and more to try and achieve and be like these people that we look up to perhaps and yeah. th- and then we don't achieve it and we become more and more frustrated we become less and less productive i mean yeah. that's the reality isn't it
1: i think so i mean my thoughts on hustle are twofold one is and we don't need to go into this in detail but there is a kind of political edge to this i think this is the natural response to a sort of collapse of a social contract where people had job security and people had social safety nets and now it's like no no the key ethical value is you're out you're on your own and you better just work harder than anybody else if you want to be able to stay afloat and have healthcare and things, and I and I sort of reject that absolutely. But it is where we are, and I think that in that context, um, you know, certainly, people are going to have to put a bunch of effort into their lives. But as you say rightly, for most people, anyway, there may be some outlier personalities um, working all through the night. Is just it's just an actively bad way to try to do the kind of work that matters and that will get results in terms of meaningfulness and in terms of, uh, money. It's just a bad way to do it to sort of fail to acknowledge that we are humans with bodies and rhythms and that sleep is as important as, <laughs> as work. And that, you know, it's just like, it's just not going to work. Um, plus I think, I hope and think that more and more, you know, especially with automation and, uh, all sorts of other aspects of where the economy is going um, you can't compete on you, you I don't think you can compete on hard work I think you know everyone's working hard <laughs> so actually you maybe are going to be competing on something more to do with creativity and originality and uh, you might get that by having a nice long sleep and a walk in the park rather than um, spending your whole day mm. being really good at answering your emails.
0: Well Yuval Noah Harari in his book um, recently he's he says the, the, the best power we have is our mind and and the the clarity that that brings to us in our lives. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and that's really important. And hustling, being super busy, and see, I struggled with hustling for ages. Oh, it's just a load of wank! I really did um, struggle with it. But now I, I look at it and I go, it's it's cool. Like, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I like to be doing things. I like to be busy. That's just who I am. It may yeah. not be for everyone. But yeah, me getting up at five o'clock, going for a swim, coming home, you know, doing the breakfast for the kids, jumping to work at eight o'clock, um, you know, always using my time as best I can is great. It actually energizes me and charges me up, but it's it's learning where to focus that energy. So I'm not hustling trying to do all these things that are unnecessary. I'm I'm now feeling like that I'm hustling in a way that is more purposeful to the few things in life that matter to me the most right now. And that'll change going yes. forward, you know. I think that's yeah, where absolutely. the the perspective of hustle can really be taken, maybe incorrectly.
1: Yes, no, I think that's. I think you've got the right. I would agree with everything
0: you just said. Okay. I man, we might have to get back, get you back on the show uh, when you release the the new book. When are you looking at doing that?
1: <laughs> well, it's. Uh, I think it's going to be a good year from now before it's actually available between covers. So uh, yes, I'll, I'll definitely keep you posted. Yeah,
0: let's do that. And it's been an incredible conversation. Um, I've got a bunch of questions that I normally ask guests, man, but we've come up to the hour, so. I think we'll – I don't know if there's any questions in there. Do you have a particular book that you'd recommend for people to read?
1: I was thinking about this. I've been deeply impressed by a book by a writer called Charles Eisenstein called – it's got a funny title. It's called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, Um, and it sounds – bit kooky i know mm. but um it's a it's a sort of huge synthesis of like he, he's an environmentalist so it's a lot of stuff about that but it goes all the way through to work and purpose and uh, all the things we've been talking about and it kind of offers an amazing synthesized picture of how these individual concerns that we've been discussing fit into you know the fates of societies and the planet and i think that that can be a real great source of energy if you feel that what you're doing matters uh in a bigger way than uh, than just in your own life
0: it's a good one. I'll certainly check it out myself. Um, do you have a quote that you'd you'd like to, uh, or something me a message you'd like to send to the entire world if you could?
1: Well, I think it relates to what I just said. Uh, we're talking about before in terms of time and productivity. It's not a quote because I'm just saying it. But I think um, uh, <laughs> it's something to do with like stop. Stop driving yourself crazy trying to do something impossible Um, or embrace your limitations or something like that. I I, I just would like everyone to have in the back of their minds that a lot of the suffering that they experience in terms of stress and anxiety is based on standards that it is literally impossible to achieve. I'm all for shooting for the impossible if what that really means is the very, very amazing end of the possible, but the literally impossible – uh, like uh, reading every relevant article to your field, uh, answering every single email that comes in, while also earning tons of money and spending all the all the good, great time with your family. You know, it's like <laughs> that's just the recipe for stress. And That's a very long quote, but anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's the um, what do you believe is the main motivation behind everything you do?
1: Ah, oh, I I I I looked at these questions that you mentioned. You'd be asking these ones, and then I just. I just can't come up with an answer to this one. I mean, I, I, I suspect that, um, we're all on some level driven to be become more fully ourselves, you know, to become more fully the the person who's sort of imprinted in us when we're, when we're born. And I think probably also just high quality social connection is something that is driving all of us, including me. That's not a very elegant answer.
0: <laughs> yeah, mate. Look, it's a cool chat. Where can people find out um, more about you? You got a website? Uh,
1: well, yeah, oliverberkman.com is there. It's uh, yeah. about uh, as I've as people are always saying about the websites about to be relaunched in a better form. Um, my book, The Antidote, is uh, available in the usual places, and uh, there's an uh, audiobook uh, of that as well. And then I'm on Twitter at uh, Oliver Berkman, Oliver B U R K E M A N.
0: That's cool. I'll stick the links in the show notes, guys. Check it out, Oliver. Thanks for coming back on. Oh, back on. Thanks for coming on the show, and I look forward to having you back at some stage.
1: Wonderful. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah,
0: yeah. Let's do that, guys. Check it out. Thehiddenwhy. dot Oliver Berkman. Until next time. Peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.